Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verses 1 to 23. And it's as we come now to 1 Samuel 16 that we reach what is the most significant hinge, I think, in the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel. Because now the time had come for a different kind of king. Saul had been rejected. Samuel had been grieving. But now the time had come. How will you grieve over, how long will you grieve over Saul, Samuel, the Lord asks in verse 1? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. And we've spent much of the last month together considering why the Lord did that, haven't we? And how do you think Samuel felt watching it all happen? He'd been the one to make sure the people of Israel understood that even as he would obey the voice of the Lord and give them the king that they asked for, theirs could not be a king like all the nations. And so it was Samuel who in chapter 10 verse 25 had told the people the rights and duties of the kingship who had written them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. It was Samuel who had summoned them to Gilgal, you remember, after the defeat of the Ammonites, and said, Come, chapter 11, verse 14, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Renew the Lord's kingdom. The reign of Saul had been inaugurated in that context of a covenant renewal ceremony in which the king and the people had together renewed their allegiance to the Lord. And there Samuel had presented them with two possibilities, chapter 12, verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And we now know, after our last few weeks together, which of those possibilities is coming to pass. Saul would repeatedly show an unwillingness to live up to his responsibilities as a covenantal king so that the whole of Saul's reign could be summarized in the words that Samuel spoke last week in chapter 15, verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So now what, brothers and sisters? So now what? Because you see, Samuel's mourning is over more than just Saul's personal rebellion and rejection. His warning at the end of that Gilgal assembly in chapter 12 said it plainly, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. How far will the Lord allow this to go? 
what will the future hold? Samuel's distress is over the spiritual disaster of King Saul. Sure, yes, but even more, I think it's over the welfare of God's people. And we don't know how long Samuel had grieved like that. We only know that one day, a day that would be a turning point in history, the Lord was ready to act. We know that the true king never loses control of his kingdom, that God's redemptive work must go forward. It was time now for a different kind of king. So this morning we're going to talk just about two questions. First, who is this king? <laughs> and second, what is it that makes him different? Who is he? And what makes him different? That's the whole sermon this morning. And so just a heads up, though it might be disappointing to some of you, that we're only going to cover verses 1 to 13 this morning. Next week, we're moving to 17. It's David and Goliath, which you've all been waiting for since the start of this series. I know that. But then I'll circle back and I will make comments on verses 14 to 23 of chapter 16 in conjunction with moving into 18. And that will make no sense right now, but it will make more sense at that point that I'm doing it that way for reasons that I'll explain then. So I'm going to leave 14 to the end of this chapter for this morning. My first question then is, who is this different kind of king? Who is this? The Lord says, fill your horn with oil, Samuel. This is the oil that he'll use to anoint the new king, right? And go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, he says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. A king among the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Friends, that's the most important thing to say concerning the identity of this new king, right? We don't even have his name yet. It's David, you know that, but it's not until verse 13 that we learn that. Samuel must go to the family of Jesse at Bethlehem. In that detail, lies the future hope of Israel and, as it turns out, the future hope of the whole world. And I know that some of you are very well versed in the scriptures here, and so this is not going to be new information for many of you around the table, but I need to dwell on this. It may be new for some of you, and even if it isn't, maybe especially if it isn't, I don't think we easily feel the significance of this moment. This time, Israel's king wouldn't come from the tribe of Benjamin. He'd come from the tribe of Judah. Jesse's of the tribe of Judah. How do we know that? It doesn't say that here, right? But for starters, Bethlehem's in Judah, about five miles south of Jerusalem, clearly in the territory of Judah. But it's the 
it's first in the book of Ruth that we get the clear explanation of this lineage, right? So if you would turn to the book of Ruth, it's to the left of first Samuel. It's right before first Samuel in your English ordering of the Old Testament. It's before first Samuel. So turn back a few pages. Ruth takes place in time before the events of Samuel, which is why it's where it is in your Bibles, because the English Bibles are based on the order of the Greek Old Testament. This is, this is, seems trivial, but it's not. Based on the order of the Greek Old Testament, which uh, some of you will know is called the Septuagint, we follow the same order of the books as the Greek Old Testament. This is where Ruth is, right before 1 Samuel. I'm not going to review the story of Ruth, but it's near the end of Ruth that Boaz redeems Ruth, and in verse 11 of Ruth 4, if you can look there, we read, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, May the Lord make the woman, that is Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Hear that? That's where Samuel is to go. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And then verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And you find his name is Obed at the end of verse 17, Ruth 4. And the verse ends by saying, he, Obed, was the father of Jesse, the Jesse to whom Samuel's now being sent, you see. And Jesse, the text says, was the father of David. So track with me now. The end of Ruth, the very end of Ruth is then a genealogy if you're there. So verse 18 of Ruth 4, just look at the beginning and the end of it. It starts with the generations of Perez. And it ends with Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David. So that the link that Ruth is making for us here is that David and his father Jesse trace back through Boaz and that wonderful story, if you know it, trace back to Perez. And Perez was the son of Judah. Remember? Which is nice to know before we come and read 1 Samuel because then we're sort of prepared for what's going on here. But as I alluded to a moment ago, but didn't say explicitly, though I have said it before, that's not the order of things in the Hebrew Bible. Ruth isn't there yet. If you were reading from the beginning, Ruth comes later. Which means if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, you come to verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16, you have no idea who Jesse is, right? This is the first time that this family's mentioned. We're not prepared for Bethlehem as a location of anything significant. I mean, the name shows up a couple times, Genesis and Judges, but it's nothing notable per se. The whole impression, in fact, from this chapter is that this is an undistinguished family in an otherwise unimportant town. And the Lord says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Jesse's sons? 
Why? Who's Jesse? What's the significance of this? Now, of course, we do have the luxury of reading this within the whole of the Bible to figure this out. And you have to see this or you just miss the significance of what's going on at this point in 1 Samuel. So just keep with me. Near the end of the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, we get in chapter 49, there's 50 chapters in Genesis, chapter 49, we get the blessings of Jacob over his 12 sons, who are the origin of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah is one of those sons. Okay. You may know, if you know Genesis at all from a high overview standpoint, that it goes from Abraham, who's the father of all Israel, to his son Isaac, to Isaac's son, Jacob. So Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and now Jacob, at the end of Genesis, is blessing his 12 sons, representing the, you know, the origin of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you read that text, and you come to the blessing for Judah there. And something's different. So this is Genesis 49, verse 8, if you want to mark it down. There's a lot of interpretive challenges in these few verses. There's a lot of debate over this text, in fact. But here's how the ESV has it. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All of which is a complete surprise in Genesis at that point. Because it's Joseph who's been in the powerful position, if you know the narrative of Genesis at that, at that juncture. And then here's this blessing with all these symbols of kingship. And Judah's compared to a lion, and there's this never-departing scepter, and the ruler's staff, and to one of his descendants shall be the obedience of the peoples, that is, the non-Israelites. We're talking Gentiles here, obeying the king of Israel. As part of the kingdom? We could talk all morning about this, but what's the point? The point is that Jacob predicts that through Judah will come a king. First of all, of course, the great empire of David. But beyond David, the greater kingdom of David's son, the Christ, you see. So one author puts it this way, this sets the tone for the chief aspect of messianic expectation in the Old Testament. The way that Abraham's blessing will come to the Gentiles, will be by the ultimate heir of David, reigning and incorporating the Gentiles into his kingdom. All of which, if you're readers of the scripture, you know this is picked up again and again all the way through. So take, for example, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, famous passage in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Hear that? Jesse. Now we're way past David in Isaiah's time. It's the stump of Jesse because at that juncture, the people have been wiped out, right? 
They're in exile. You know your Old Testament story. And Isaiah says, a branch from his, Jesse's roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Who's Isaiah talking about? Well, it's the Messiah, right? It's the coming heir of David. It's Jesus from the stump of Jesse. Echoes of it in Revelation 19, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's all the way through. You know how the whole Bible ends in Revelation 22. The words of Jesus, Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And you jump to verse 16 and listen to this. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. The root and the descendant of David. Brothers and sisters, did Samuel have even the slightest idea? How long will you grieve over Saul? My dear prophet, go! I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. It's okay. Samuel can't know the ultimate significance of what the Lord has asked him to do. I don't think in that moment. Samuel knows it now, but not at that moment. Because who's the Lord talking about? there in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Well, obviously he's talking about David, but this goes way beyond David. And of course, we're going to see how in 2 Samuel comes the explicit promise to David and to his house that his will be a kingdom that will never end. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Brothers and sisters, I just want you to feel the significance of this moment. Because we've been watching, and it's kind of hard to do, to watch Saul just derail over the course of the last few chapters, and Samuel's now grieving, and the people are leaderless, and God is what? God's at work in ways beyond what anyone could have imagined. Here's how one commentator puts that. The God of biblical revelation is a God who, time and again and in amazing ways, turns disappointments and human failures into the advancement of his kingdom and the accomplishment of his purposes. I say all of that 
not only to remind us of the whole Bible, whole history significance of what's happening right here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, but also because I think it's in fact precisely in the accomplishment of God's purposes that we discover the dominant theme of this text. This is moving me now into my second main question. And that is, what is it that makes this king different? What is it that makes this king different? And you've already kind of got the answer, but look again at the language here at the end of verse 1. Go, Samuel, for I have provided for myself, the Lord says. Literally, it reads, I have seen for myself. And that's important because this verb to see, you can't pick it up in the way it's translated, but it's, it's used several times, translated a couple of ways here in this chapter. It's the key verb. It's going to keep being used several times in this chapter to see. I have seen for myself a king among his sons. How the Lord sees becomes very significant. But notice here first that the Lord speaks of seeing for myself a king. What is it that makes this king different? Well, here's part of the answer. It is that time and again, you saw how Saul was the king chosen by the people for themselves. Right? Appoint for us a king, the elders said to Samuel in chapter 8, verse 5. Samuel referred to the king they demanded as your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. Chapter 8, verse 18. The Lord told Samuel to make a king for them. Chapter 8, verse 22. Saul is described as the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked your king. Chapter 12, verse 13 and verse 25. So that fundamentally, even though the Lord was sovereign over this and had led Samuel to Saul, so that in chapter 10, verse 24, we read, that Saul was also chosen by the Lord. Still, I would argue that fundamentally, Saul was appointed because of the people's demands for themselves. But now the time had come to make a king for myself, says the Lord. My purposes. My kingdom. And of course, Samuel's reluctant, right? Because he'd have to pass through Gibeah to go from Ramah to Bethlehem. Gibeah is where Saul is. Things are not okay between him and Saul, obviously, as we saw last week. But Samuel goes. He goes with the sacrifice that he has to offer when he anoints a new king. Verse 4, he does what the Lord commands. He comes to Bethlehem. The elders are afraid, it says, concerning why Samuel has shown up there. This is a wonderful moment where they ask, have you come in peace? And in Bethlehem, of all places, what does Samuel say? In peace. Where is that ending up in the New Testament? He comes to Bethlehem, but the elders are afraid. And we come to verse 6, and the text says that Samuel looked on, or Samuel saw, same verb, the same verb that's translated as provided in verse 1, where the Lord has seen or has provided. Now Samuel sees Eliab and thinks, surely 
the Lord's anointed is before him. And it's not right. And if I'm totally honest, I'm a little disappointed in Samuel at that moment. I think because, I don't know, I wrestled with this. I mean, why hadn't Samuel learned this lesson? I don't have a clear answer to that. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on, same verb, do not see, do not look, do not see his appearance or the height of his stature. Remember that. Because I have rejected him. Now, the narrator is not subtle there at all. That verb for rejecting Eliab is the same verb that we heard used in verse 5, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 26, when the Lord says he was rejecting Saul. Same verb. You would then likely recall how Saul had been the tall and handsome one. Right? That the people were glad to see way back in chapter 10. Head and shoulders above all the people, mighty in stature. There's none like him among all the people, Samuel said then. And then comes the key moment in verse 7. And I read at least two very different commentators that I read this week argue that this is the key verse in all of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to do my best with this, but last service someone told me this was pretty confusing, so sorry. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try. We'll see if I get there. The ESV translates it this way. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Same verb. Man looks, same verb, on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks, same verb, on the heart, all the same verb for seeing and for looking. But now watch this. The way that the ESV translates here is perfectly possible. You have an accurate translation in front of you. It fits with the way that this very famous verse is rendered in essentially all English translations, which is to say that you get the sense that the main idea as they translate it here is this, that the way you and I see things is limited that we can only see what is external, while the Lord can see what is internal, and that it's the heart that matters far more than appearance. And that's all true biblically. Of course it is, right? You have texts like Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There's plenty of biblical teaching to support that line of thinking in a general sense. God is concerned with the heart above all, so much so, in fact, that the foundational promise he makes is that he will change our hearts as his people. It's always about the heart. But I want to submit for your thinking that verse 7 is saying more than just that, if I may. That more literally, the last part of verse 7 could be read this way. And this is not just Keith Ganser, but from what I read this week and others pointing this out as well. The last part of verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes. would be a possible way of translating this. The ESV says man looks on the outward appearance. You hear the difference? Man looks, sees according to the eyes. And then 
But the Lord sees according to the heart. And the ESV has the Lord looks on the heart. I'm suggesting this translation as a possibility. The Lord sees according to the heart. Now listen. I know this is where it splits hairs, maybe, but what I'm saying is that at this most critical juncture of 1 Samuel, the point isn't that the Lord sees David's heart. At least that's not the only thing going on. It's not that the Lord sees David's heart, but that the Lord sees David according to his heart. According to the Lord's heart. Do you hear the difference? Yes, God can see and know the heart in ways that we cannot as men and women. But the point here may be that God sees what his purposes are, the intentions of his heart for David. In other words, God has seen a king for himself, according to verse 1. Because God sees with his heart. And that means, as I read it, that God, in verse 1 of our text, that I have seen a king for myself, is saying exactly what Samuel had said back in chapter 13, verse 14. If you remember this, when Samuel talks about David and says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, if you're like I was until I tried to sort this out a bit more, and like most people, what you hear that in that, the Lord sought out a man after his own heart, is you hear a man with a heart like God's heart, right? That that's what the Lord's looking for, is someone with a heart like his. What if it means instead this? What if a man after God's own heart means a man that God has set his heart on? What if the point is not that David possessed some quality that the Lord found attractive in a king, but that David, by the grace of God, had a particular place in God's heart and in God's purposes, and that that's what made him so very different from Saul, you see. And that after Eliab, up comes seven of Jesse's sons before Saul and Samuel. Samuel now seeing things like the Lord sees them. Neither has the Lord chosen that one. Samuel said of Abinadab and then of Shammah and then all the rest. Why? Because none of them was the one that the Lord had seen according to the Lord's heart to be the king for himself, you see. God didn't, I'm suggesting, choose the new king of the line of Judah. He didn't choose the new king because he had positive personal qualities. Brothers and sisters, whatever qualities we see in this new king, and we will. Oh, we will see David's heart. But whatever qualities we see in this new king, I'm suggesting to you, are the consequence of, not the reason for God's choice of him. Do you hear that difference? It's crucial, not just to how we think about David, but how do we think about ourselves, dear friends? How we think about the Lord loving us, the Lord choosing us. Not because of anything to do with us, but because the Lord wants to change us and use us for his purposes.
the security of David's throne. This is so important in the rest of Samuel. The security of David's throne rests on the solid foundation of God's promises, not on David's performance. Now, will David respond to sin in the way he should? Yes. Will David keep covenant with the Lord in ways Saul never did? Yes. Why? Because God's seen him to be his king for his kingdom forever. At such a turning point of history, how could it be otherwise? And here all seven of the sons go past, and Samuel's a bit puzzled, right? I mean, so verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, Hey, are all your sons here? And now you can tell Samuel's seeing things like the Lord sees them. And he said, Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest. I actually prefer the translation, the smallest. In the ESV, there's a footnote that says it can be translated the smallest. Whether or not he was the youngest, I don't know, but there remains yet the smallest, the little guy. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And so they wait. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now David was ruddy. That means he had a reddish complexion. And then the ESV says, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And frankly, I don't like that because it plays up. It plays up. We can't help ourselves. We just think this is so important. David does have beautiful eyes. It's not what it says. It plays it up in translation a bit. The idea is he was appealing to the eyes. He's fine in appearance. A good looking little guy. The idea is, we learn, there's nothing said about his stature. The Lord says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is he. And as I see it, this young man was to be anointed for one reason only. Because the Lord had seen him. The Lord had willed it. This was his king. Which is precisely why, as Samuel anoints him, the most important thing that happens in this text is in verse 13. God empowers him for the task. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Verse 13 says, and the significance of that wording. His was not an empowerment for a particular moment or for a specific task, but permanently. Samuel anointed David, the son of Jesse, of the line of Judah in Bethlehem, as the one chosen by God to be a different kind of king from Saul. Why? Because the redemptive purposes of God are moving forward. For I have seen, he says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.